Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and for this, the 30th episode of the Innovation Engine, we're taking to the cutting room floor to bring you some never-before-heard footage from previous episodes of the podcast. Over the course of the next half hour, you'll hear from Horace Dediu on why product designers need a deep understanding of human psychology and behavior to create successful products. You'll hear Warren Berger, author of A More Beautiful Question, named one of the top 20 books to read this summer by Business Insider, discussing Zen and the art of asking the right questions. And we'll also hear from best-selling author and keynote speaker Rowan Gibson on the importance of discretionary time and things like the 70-20-10 rule. So sit back, relax, and let's hear some never-before-heard footage from the vault of the Innovation Engine podcast. So in this first clip that I want to share, Horace Dediu, who's a noted Apple analyst and one of my favorite guests of anyone who's come on the podcast so far, talks about why designers and successful product developers need to have a keen understanding of human psychology and behavior. So we had been talking about mobile and healthcare and how technology will soon be able to help us make more informed decisions about our livelihood. I made kind of an offhand remark about how these apps that, we, that he was talking about will probably tell us to eat more fruits and vegetables. And I thought his response was brilliant and also very thought provoking. So give it a listen. Well, I bet the app will tell us to eat more fruits and vegetables. Well, it probably will, but it's a question about the psychology. When you study, when you study behavior and what, what consumers do, you'll, you'll sense that they're, they're not just the, 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 the mechanisms for reward and for, for punishment are very complex. Uh, the, the, you can engineer solutions where people will live better, but they may not happen the way we think of. I mean, a lot of the, the ways we buy things and what motivates us to buy things have been engineered products. People know how to engineer the sale and the positioning of products. And, and the technology world has not learned that yet. We don't know how, um, how clothing is sold, for example. We kind of think we know how software is sold and bought, but we don't really know what it takes for a retailer to be successful in, in, in apparel. Psychology is going to be very important as a, as a, as a, as a skill um, for marketers of technology. What is the psychology? And also that means app writers. That means people who write apps about getting exactly this question of fitness worked out. How do you create convincing stories and, and con you know, convincing and persuading people? Other, by the way, industries have figured a lot of this stuff out uh, are the movie industry, which, which knows how to man manipulate emotion. Uh, uh, a lot of the art artists of the world have an intuitive understanding of how to touch people. So this type of uh, this type of uh, uh, um, um, power needs to be placed in apps that affect health, and it's not simply a uh, a list of things to do. It's subtle ways of getting people to get excited about certain things that they should do. Right? It's changing motivations, um, and if you could just use an ounce of of uh, of the skill needed to you know that 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 people go into marketing 
video games and all these other things and apply that to to the question of health maintenance that could be really revolutionary this next clip features warren berger who's a noted journalist and the author of several books including a more beautiful question which was named one of business insiders top 20 books to read this summer so warren and i talked about the art of asking the right questions and things like how that fits into design thinking uh, our conversation ran a little long and this next bit didn't exactly fit in with the rest of it, but in it he gives a good description of the connection between Zen and the art of questioning, and how they can both be tied back to the concept of the beginner's mind. So you, you wrote a while back in Fast Company about Zen, innovation, and the art of asking questions. So for people out there that are looking to strengthen their questioning muscles, what's the connection between Zen, innovation, and the art of asking questions? Well, uh, the, the thing that's sort of Zen about asking questions is that um, you, it, it has to do with um, slowing down and uh, being very mindful and being reflective. You know, it has to do with thinking in a word. If you, had to, if you had to boil it down to one word, you know, questioning is about thinking. Mm -hmm. And that's where um, I noticed some similarities with sort of Zen philosophy, you know, which is, which is a lot of it is about, you know, getting, getting people to slow down and pay more attention and think more, think more deeply and notice, notice things more. So I, I don't want to go too far into the whole Zen thing because I, I know that some people would, that to some people that would be as much of a, of a, of a, you know, a barrier as it would be something that attracts them because people sure. feel like, well, I'm not, I'm not a Zen person, you know, so I don't want to go into all that, that stuff. I don't meditate. I don't do any of that kind of stuff. But, and you don't really have to do any of that to be a good questioner, but, but there are some similar principles uh, that have to do with the idea that um, when you do want to question uh, well, you do have to kind of stop rushing around so much and you have to kind of pay attention to things and, and think about things a little more deeply. So it could be, you know, it could be the daily routine of, of what people are doing within your company. It could, be, it could be a work process that you're doing where everyone just kind of does, does it automatically. But when it's time to question, you need to sort of step back, slow down, and look at that process. You know, really look at it in a way that you don't normally look at it and say, look at each aspect of what people are doing and say, why are they doing this? Okay, why we have people go through steps A, B, C, and D on this process. Why do they go through step A? Why do they do B? Does, does it make sense? Is it, might there be a different way to do it? And so that kind of, um, that kind of uh, again, to use a, a Zen term, there's, there's a term, uh, a beginner's mind, Right, which is very, very um, popular uh, in that in that realm, and beginner's mind is um, is basically about you know getting yourself to look at things as if you're an outsider or a beginner. You know, so you're looking at things that you're very familiar with, and, and in this case, maybe your company and your and the way your company works, the way your company does things, and you're trying to look at them as if you've never seen it before or done it before. You're trying to look at them the way an outsider or a beginner would look at them. And um, if you can get yourself to do that, it's not really that hard. It's really kind of a habit, a habit of mind. Um, if you can get yourself to do that, 
it's incredible what you'll notice, you know, you, because you, when you really slow down and pay attention and really think about things, suddenly you notice, you notice stuff that was right under your nose all along, but you just weren't really paying attention and you weren't looking for it. So you didn't see it. And, um, and so you'll, you'll tend to notice all kinds of interesting patterns and inconsistencies and you'll notice things that don't make sense. Um, things that maybe made sense five years ago, but they don't make sense now, you know, and you were doing them anyway, just because you were in the habit, right? So that's what, that's where this kind of, this kind of thinking, this kind of beginner's mind, uh, thinking becomes really important. And, and, and it allows you to ask the questions, the naive questions that you normally would not ask. Okay. Got it. And the, one of the books that you mentioned in the article, uh, and the Fast Company article is Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, which I had the, I, you know, I would say pleasure of reading. It was, it was, it's a pretty dense read and, you know, a little yeah, bit out there. Um, it's challenging. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and it's, and, you know, I don't know that you have to, someone has to read that book. Um, sure. It's more like they have to get the, 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 there's a central concept in there. And if you get that concept, I don't know that, you know, I don't know that, I'm not saying you shouldn't read the book, it's, it's a wonderful book and lots of people love it, yeah. but there's, there's a central concept that you can pull out of that book that is, is the most important thing for, as a business person that you need to know, which is just what I was talking about, the idea that when you can look at things with a fresh perspective and a beginner's mind, you will see all kinds of things that you normally don't notice and you will see possibilities that uh, that are not visible to someone who is us- who is too close to uh, a way of doing things, or too close to a process, or too close to a subject. You know, when you're an expert in something, a lot of times it's good to be an expert, but a lot of times you don't notice things and you don't question things because you've kind of got everything down pat. You know, you figure I've got this all figured out. I know how it works. I've got the routine down. And when you're in that kind of mindset, you miss a lot of things. So the whole idea with beginner's mind is, you know, try to get yourself to step back, try to get yourself to look at things with that, with that fresh perspective, those fresh eyes, and then be willing to ask a lot of why questions. Why? Okay, why is it this way? Why are we doing it that way? Does it make sense? Is there another way? Rowan Gibson is a best-selling author and a featured keynote speaker who has spoken on innovation in more than 60 countries around the world. We spent an episode talking about building a blueprint for innovation. And in this upcoming clip, hear Rowan talk about the importance of giving employees discretionary time to pursue innovation initiatives. He talks about strategies like the 70-20-10 rule and how companies like Google use discretionary time to help them hatch the next big thing. One of the things you talk about in the videos on your website that I'm curious about is giving employees discretionary time to come up with innovative ideas. What are some standard ways that companies can ensure in those situations they're actually getting valuable outputs that are somehow commensurate uh, with that employee's time? Yeah, so I think that uh, the, the issue of discretionary time is very important because, you know, on the one hand, we're asking people to, to bring their brains to work and innovate and whatever else. But then we're saying, well, look, sorry, there's no time for that. You know, do it on your own time. Do it, do it at home or do it at the weekend or, you know, and so it's never going to. So there's no time and there's no money. Innovation is really cute. We love it. But, but, you know, don't spend any time or money on it. Um, you know, that's never going to work. So one, one of the things that's important as a cultural mechanism and, and it's a strong message from the leadership is 
you know, to give people some kind of discretionary time to work on new ideas. Now, we know that this has worked very well at companies like 3M and Google. It's, you know, quite famous. People talk about the 70-20-10 principle, you know, 70% of your time's on on the sort of normal day-to-day uh, -day stuff, 20% is on strategic projects, 10% is on your own pet projects. Um, WL Gore, the makers of Gore-Tex, they do something very similar. So 10% of your time, well, not everybody across the company gets 10% to work on new ideas, but at least some people get a certain percentage of time to you know, think new thoughts, stretch their thinking along new lines, uh, do some research, you know, just sort of put their heads up from what they're currently doing and think about new ways of doing things. And that's important. But your question is, oh, how do we figure out whether we're getting any value out of that? Well, I mean, one of the things is, is metrics. So, you know, most companies don't really use metrics uh, very well. All, they, all they're doing is measuring how many new ideas we're actually commercializing. But I think, you know, first of all, how many new ideas are we producing across the company? Where are they coming from? Which business units? In fact, there are now... Um, kind of online dashboards that you could use, like IT platforms, where you can literally see, you know, how many ideas are being produced across the company, uh, where the best ones are coming from, which ones are incremental, which ones are radical, uh, uh, where they are in the innovation pipeline. You know, have they been evaluated and uh, sort of pushed forward? Um, what's come out of the experiments that we've uh, been conducting? How much money have we currently invested in that idea? Um, you know, how much do we believe it's going to be worth when it's commercialized? So these are, you know, tools that can help us with metrics, um, you know, to figure out what's coming out of this this whole thing. And and sometimes they're just simple things. You know, Google has a, a, a thing they call the 100 pet projects list, you know, of Larry Page and Sergey Brin. And so one of the greatest honors at Google is to have your pet project put on that 100 pet project list. And that's become the kind of launch pad for a lot of the great Google um, ideas that we've seen in the last few years, uh, because they, they kind of they think of these these pet projects as Googlets, you know, like little baby Googles <laughs> that may one day, yeah, may one day grow up to become uh, big Googles. And so, so that's you know, there are there are mechanisms that we can use to 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 figure out you know what's coming out of this thing. Are people just sitting around picking their noses or looking out the window, or are they actually producing? Um, ideas and with the companies that I've that I've looked at in detail, um, there's always been an amazing return on investment in terms of giving people uh, time to think about new things. Dr. Mahesh Joshi is the director of the Innovation and Entrepreneurship Program at George Mason University. We spent an episode talking all about process and how it can be used to help drive innovation. In this clip. Dr. Joshi talks about how process is important in helping companies deal with turnover and speak a common language. So question on that front, because I've, I've had bosses in the past where, and not here of course, but where at seemingly every task turned into a, we have to build a process around this to make sure it's repeatable. So how can you ensure that that's the case, but not also turn every instance of everything that you do into some kind of corporate drudgery? Yes. So, so the cha there is a balance. There is a trade-off, right? Uh, a lot of things, particularly service firms, and the fact is today 80% of American firms are service-oriented. Service firms have many more processes, but those processes are implicit in the mind of the worker. 
The problem with that is that when the worker moves away or mo leaves the job or uh, gets promoted, if it's not transferable, then that part comes to screeching halt. To avoid that, we need to have some kind of transcription where processes can explain what exactly that person did. Mm -hmm. On other hand, uh, I'm gonna throw a fancy word called a lot of things in life follow equifinality. And the idea there is there is no one single route to reach the destination. Once you know your destination, there are many different paths to follow. When people create processes, they look at the processes and ask themselves, is that process suitable for my style, my approach, my strengths, my weaknesses? Mm -hmm. So if I create a process to do something and then when I am moving on and boss comes and says, now teach this process to Will, in conceptual aspect, I should be able to do that. But the reality is that process I created was to suit my style. Mm -hmm. Now if your style is different, then it's gonna be a drudgery, sure, right? So drudgery comes because most of us don't separate between our personal likes and dislikes and the objective process flow through that gets us to the destination. If we are cognizant about it, if we are aware about it, and when we are transcribing the process, we say that I did this for my personal reasons, these are the objective paths, that process must be followed by everybody, the side frills can be adjusted as per individual likes and dislikes, then the drudgery parts uh, disappear. Sure, okay. So. Sounds like maybe some training of employees up front on why things are done the way they're done. Right. Uh, and also maybe part of that was on me for, for not liking the way that the process was being imposed upon me. Exactly. As I saw it. So, so uh, in my consulting uh, assignments, I focus a lot on uh, besides uh, how to focus on uh, employees becoming innovative, creative, and entrepreneurial, I also spend a lot of time on how to make employees being reflective. Because a lot of times we are under so much pressure operationally mm -hmm. that things have to be done in a real short time that we don't have time to reflect upon why we did certain things the way they came out. Mm -hmm. So uh, uh, a sign of a good organization that promotes good processes will be where they provide a way to reflect on past assignments, reflect on a completed project, and see, extract, there are major takeaways on the process, those are generalizable versus uh, other parts of the processes, those are uh, more uh, idiosyncratic. So post-mortems across organizations are important things to do. Absolutely, okay. absolutely. And I don't like to use the word post-mortem because it has negative connotation. And that's why I said reflective process. <laughs> I like that. I like the way you couch that. Russ Schoen was another one of our early guests. And Russ and I talked about innovation and the importance of being open. One clip that didn't quite make the final cut was about common elements of successful brainstorming sessions. In this clip, you'll hear Russ talk about why it's important to have diversity in your workshops and why it's important to equip people with skills that they can immediately apply when running brainstorming sessions.
Okay. And on, in that vein, you regularly conduct workshops as part of as part of your job. Uh, I'm sure that you've seen it all in terms of ones that have gone over like lead balloons and ones that have been smashing successes. So what do workshops that are smashing successes have in common? Sure. They tend to um, have a couple of things. Number one is they tend to have support at some sort of, um, you know, leadership level. So they'll have a, an internal sponsor advocate who is really uh, passionate and supportive of either the process or the workshop content. The second thing that I think, uh, this is my own experience, is um, a diversity of participants. And by diversity, I don't just mean gender or race. I mean cognitive diversity. So, um, you know, having team representation or functional representation from various aspects of the business, whether it's finance, R&D, marketing, um, the other thing is I think the, the workshops that have been the most smashing success are the ones that equip people with skills or tools that they can immediately apply to their context. Mm -hmm. And so we like to take the approach of action learning in that we'll introduce tools or concepts. We'll demonstrate them on what we call an out-of-context challenge so that they can learn the tool or the process. And then immediately, we would apply it to something relevant to their business so that they can make the connection of, wow, when we use this tool or approach on our real business challenge, there's actually a, a positive difference. Oh, I can see how I could apply this with my team. And I think that's an important thing is to give people that experience sequence of introduce the tool, practice the tool on something engaging, but out of context, and then apply the tool or the process on something real. So those would be sort of the, the elements that I've seen um, the smashing successful workshops follow. Yeah, that makes sense. So action learning, people want things that are tangible they can take with them. A absolutely. And if, you know, when we do longer sessions, like sometimes, you know, in Kuwait we did um, – uh, a two-day course called Breakthrough Thinking for Innovation. As part of that course, the, the, the teams are actually working on real challenges that are relevant to their business. So by the end of the course, they've identified some robust ideas to solve real business issues, and they have a detailed action plan for moving that forward. So that's the notion of, of them walking out with, wow, you know, I was exposed to a number of tools. Some of them I love. But what I realized is by using the process and the tools we've actually made, we've gained momentum against a real business issue. David DeWolf, the CEO of the company I work for, Three Pillar Global, has been on the podcast a few times. Most recently, we talked about innovation, the future of software, and this year's Fortune Brainstorm Tech Conference in Aspen, Colorado. In this clip... David talks about what it was like to see the CEOs of Microsoft and Cisco on stage and why he admires Cisco CEO John Chambers for his willingness to make big bets. Okay, so let me ask you about some of the speakers at the conference. It sounds like the companies that spoke, uh, there was kind of a who's who of big names there. Microsoft CEO Satya Nadella, mm -hmm. Intel's president Renee James. Yeah. 
did you have a favorite speaker among those that you saw? Gosh, that's a hard question. Um, a lot of them were really, really good. Um, I actually did think Satya Nadella was phenomenal. Um, I, you know, the stark contrast to me was the difference between the old Microsoft and the new Microsoft. The fact that he was there to me was just impressive because sure. I don't think Bomber ever would have been there, right? He wasn't there yeah. last year, and I, I think it's it's very telling. And also his vision, right? Laying out um, very cloud-oriented vision, understanding the Internet of Things and computing in the cloud um, and the power of that. And um, I think he's really connecting the dots between where the assets in Microsoft are today and the future and what's happening in technology. I think he has a vision for that. So much more a, what I would describe as a product oriented CEO mm -hmm. versus a sales oriented CEO. And let's be honest, Microsoft needs that. Um, and I think it's good for our technology industry. I mean, I'll be honest, I'm not a huge Microsoft fan. Uh, I don't think they've promoted innovation in the way as some of the other companies. Um, not that they haven't innovated, but they haven't promoted an ecosystem of innovation and knowledge sharing like others have. Mm -hmm. Um, I fundamentally believe things will change. Um, the other one though, that, you know, I think the one I really enjoyed, I really love John Chambers and, um, the, um, uh, of Cisco, correct? That is correct. Yep. And, um, uh, just, I have such a tremendous respect for him and what he's done and how he has navigated a market and really evolved that company over the years and hearing stories about that, he has a profound ability to experiment, to make really big bets, take really big risks, and be willing to say, I was wrong, and pull the plug. And um, with that, admit that he just invested a lot of money or made a big bet that was wrong and move on. And I think that's so powerful. Um, I think innovative organizations have to be able to do that. Um, and it takes strong leadership to cut your losses and move on. Um, and it, it's, I think, very powerful. I think it's a lesson we can all learn um, to be willing to do that. And obviously, he can make bigger bets than the, many of us can, sure. right? <laughs> but I think all of us can learn that lesson, that it's not just about taking the risk. It's not just about putting yourself out there. It's being able to look at the data, look at the facts, and make judgment calls of, this is not going to work. I was wrong. I misjudged the market or I underestimated the technical complexity. Whatever the issue is, simply move on. That's how you get to the next innovation is learning from those mistakes and moving on. And did, did he give examples of, of things that he had been wrong about or that he had to pull the pull the plug on and eat crow on maybe? Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, you know, he was talking about a, a myriad of different things that they had done and going down different paths. You know, one of the ones that stuck out to me was uh, around some acquisitions mm -hmm. um, and describing, uh, you know, large acquisitions they had made. that They said, you know, they actually have a higher success rate um, by orders of magnitude greater than most companies that do do acquisitions. But one of the things they learned early on was how to manage his board through the process of, listen, acquisitions are inherently risky. Um, we're going to make some mistakes. We're going to make some um, great bets. They're going to play out the way they play out. But what we got to do is when they don't work out, pull the plug. And um, I, I just thought, you know, that describes to you the level of risk he's willing to take and the level to which he's willing to pull the plug if he's admitting up front that, hey, all these aren't going to work out. 
Last but certainly not least is Michael Gelb. Michael is an author and a recent guest on the podcast. We spoke about harnessing your creativity to drive innovation. There was too much quality footage to weave in the personal anecdote that Michael shared at the end of the podcast, but he has a great one. This clip is about the time Michael shared the stage with the Rolling Stones, thanks to one of his unique talents, juggling. Hear Michael tell the story of how his juggling prowess landed him on stage beside Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. So I have to ask before I let you go, it says in the author bio for you on your book that you're a professional juggler who has performed with the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so where, where, where and when did you share the stage with Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and the rest of the Stones? Uh, well, way back in the late 70s, I was juggling in the park with my juggling buddy, uh, Lloyd uh, Tim Timberlake, uh -huh. who then was the science editor of Reuters in Europe. And a gentleman approached us in the park and said, I'm with the Rolling Stones tour. We need jugglers. We have a carnival theme. Would you like to be at Earl's Court tonight juggling with Mick and the Stones on stage? We said, sure. <laughs> so that night, indeed, there we were uh, performing in between sets. And that went so well that we were invited to the Nebworth Rock Festival, where we performed our juggling act on a giant stage shaped like Mick Jagger's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, we used to have this great finale for our act. We would juggle a rubber chicken, a, a pointy kitchen fork, and a turnip. And we'd, we'd you know, make clucking sounds and joke around, and then we'd throw up the turnip and catch it at the exact same time on our respective sharp kitchen forks. Well, we're in front of this audience of hundreds of thousands of people. It was a vast ocean of denim and hair. And we threw up our turnips and we both missed. And I got to tell you, I'm glad this happened early in my career that I had the experience of 100,000 or more people laughing at me. Uh, anyway, somebody threw up the, uh, the turnips and we got to try again. And this time we got it perfect just right to the moment and I'll never forget the chanting and the cheering of the crowd. Bring on the stones, bring on the stones. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but I met Mick and uh, uh, he was very gracious and uh, had great energy by the way. And it was, it was, I knew it would be a fun story for years to come. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the innovation engine podcast. Thanks so much for joining us this week for this retrospective and a look deep inside the recording vault of the Innovation Engine. Special thanks to Horace Dediu, Warren Berger, Rowan Gibson, Dr. Mahesh Joshi, Russ Schoen, David DeWolf, and Michael Gelb for coming on the podcast and letting us air these never-before-heard clips. I'd also like to give a special thanks to two co-workers, Sunil Param and Clint Harrigan, who have provided invaluable writing and editing support along this podcasting journey. Thanks again to you for joining us this week. And don't forget to tune into next week's episode when we're excited to have Doug Williams, Chief Research Analyst at Innovation Excellence on the podcast, to talk about the language of innovation, what companies stand to gain by creating a common language for innovation, the top sources of waste, 
created by uncertainty around innovation endeavors, and the difference between ideas, invention, and innovation. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.